What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Cam, this is William Klein. He was wrecking an office. But I, I just wanted to meet them face to face. I, I wanted them to admit what they were doing. Who is they? He was in the office of the Trilateral Commission. Trilateral Commission? Yeah, the Trilateral Commission. <laughs> All right, what is the Trilateral Commission? It's an organization founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller to bring together business and political leaders from the United States, Europe, Japan, so they could work together for uh, better economic and political cooperation between their nations. And with that, that's what they'd like us to believe. But you see, what they're really up to is a scheme to plant their own loyal members in positions of power in this country, to work to erase national boundaries and create an international community, and in time, bring about a one-world government with David Rockefeller calling the shots. I take it they're pressing charges? Yeah, well, uh, uh, he broke a globe and, uh, and some UNICEF artwork. Well, they're, they're in on it, too. Okay, Mr. Klein, if you just... I'm telling you, our whole way of life as we know it is in jeopardy. I appreciate that information. But I, I, have, the, I have the documented evidence. It's all in there. Show him. Well, he's got, uh, got these magazines here. Conspiracy Review. Suppressed Truth Roundup. The whole master plan is exposed. Yeah, well, um... You're still not convinced, huh? <laughs> would, would you like to hear the names of just a few of the people who have been on the Trilateral Commission? Uh, not particularly. James no. Earl Carter. Heard of him? Look, Mr. Klein... Henry Kissinger. You heard of him? Walter Mondale. Who? <laughs> Mr. Klein, this is... John all... Anderson. George Bush. Now, you remember at the, at the convention, everybody thought it was going to be Ford for Veep. You know what happened? David Rockefeller just picked up a phone, put in a call. Hey, Ronnie, forget Jerry, it's George. Bye. <laughs> so, no matter who won in November, they had their man in the White House. From Barney Miller in 1981. Is the TV show Mocking Conspiracy Theorists? Or is it a warning about the technocrat world we live in? Paranoia Big Destroyer, as the king sang? Or is being paranoid simply mean you've been paying attention all this time? Philip K. Dick was called paranoid, yet his warning prophecies have mostly come true today. The Gnostics warned about the rising church and the Roman Empire template. 2,000 years later, with billions of innocent dead, tens of billions of broken souls, and a planet on the brink, humanity, paraphrasing Einstein, still wants to solve its problems with the same Abrahamic consciousness that created those same problems. 
Screw that. You think you guys are heroes for killing innocent people? It's because the assholes like you that were even in this fucking place, you fucking cowards. Well, maybe if the people in your country stopped eating donuts and started realizing what our government is doing to the world, assholes like us wouldn't exist. Fuck you! Donuts are awesome! They're delicious. Ah, Robert. Those reality tunnels are a bitch, ain't they? But as Neil Gaiman wrote in American Gods, not only are there no happy endings, there aren't even any endings. Nonetheless, I think more and more are waking up. See that the game is rigged and the dice was loaded from the start. At the same time, the Cathedral of Curtis circles its wagons around tyranny, while the meat sack masses sink further into ignorance, the greatest of sins according to the Gospel of Philip, wanting some old normal and herd safety. As Upton Sinclair wrote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends upon his not understanding it. And as Doctor Who said, You know, the very powerful and the very stupid have one thing in common. They don't alter their views to fit the facts. They alter the facts to fit the views. Which can be uncomfortable if you happen to be one of the facts that needs altering. So here we are, in a patently obvious Philip K. Dick world. The game hasn't changed with us, generation without a king, as the Sethians call themselves. Our task is to not sin by destroying ignorance, help the least of our brothers, and take that inner journey to find our higher selves. As James True wrote, Knowing they lie to you is intelligence. Knowing you lie to yourself is wisdom. This is not a battle of good versus evil. This is a battle of you against the lack of you. Quietly yearning for what you don't have while dreading losing what you do. For 99.9% .9 of your race, that is the definition of reality. Desire and fear, baby. Just give the people what they want, right? Nowhere better to win that battle in finding yourself and being more of yourself here at Aeon Bite. We don't take prisoners but liberate them. We are not the final authority on anything but hope to be an endless possibility for everything. You are the final authority, have always been. Divided we stand, together we rise. It's all fun and games until someone loses a third eye, and then it's just gnosis. Yes, these are bruises from fighting. Yes, I'm comfortable with that. I am enlightened. Welcome, you shining crazy diamonds. I, Miguel, your host and pompadus of gnosis, welcomes you to the machine and the means to escape it. My father says that almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you see, everybody you talk to. He says that only a few people are awake, and they live in a state of constant, total amazement. To remove ignorance and see through the hologram of the Empire, let us take a sober look at arguably the most famous conspiracy theory boogeyman, the Illuminati. 
For this aeonic task, we have the pleasure of being joined at the Virtual Alexandria by John E. Graham to discuss his new book, The Bavarian Illuminati, The Rise and Fall of the World's Most Secret Society. Get ready for a cogent and historical inspection of this notorious organization. Without all the sensationalism that might be just misinformation from the Archons and their Catamites and Karens in the establishment. If it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. John is an incredible translator, editor, and researcher, as you shall see. And the book is the dry and tight historical work everyone in the esoterica should lean on. As a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include an excerpt from an interview with Gnostic academic Matthew Dillon, where he discusses the psycho-spirituality of conspiracy theories. A proper balance to this episode, with some cool Jungian and Gnostic bells and whistles. Human beings are pattern-seeking animals, by which I mean we prefer ideas that fit a pattern. In other words, we don't believe what we see. We see what we believe. We need the Sophia of Matthew and John more than ever, especially in these divide and conquer times where free expression, free speech, and free but solid facts seem to be going into extinction as group thought and immature tribalism tear civilization apart. Reminds me of Orwell on his words on doublespeak. To know and not to know. To be conscious of complete truthfulness while telling carefully constructed lies. To hold simultaneously two opinions which cancelled out. Knowing them to be contradictory and believing in both of them. To forget whatever it was necessary to forget then to draw it back into memory again at the moment when it was needed, and then promptly to forget it again. That was the ultimate subtlety. So this is how liberty dies. With thunderous applause. Ah, sometimes I wonder if humans didn't descend from apes, but ostriches, always with their heads in the sands of time. But that safety in numbers fallacy will bend reason into a fundamentalism of sorts. And as Thomas Pynchon wrote, if they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about answers. What's more, Frank Herbert did write, most civilization is based on cowardice. It's easy to civilize by teaching cowardice. You water down the standards which would lead to bravery. You restrain the will. You regulate the appetites. You fence in the horizons. You make a law for every movement. You deny the existence of chaos. You teach even the children to breathe slowly. You tame. The sheeple aren't going anywhere. They like my world. They don't want this sentimentality. They don't want freedom or empowerment. They want to be controlled. They crave the comfort of certainty 
And that means you two back in your pods, unconscious and alone, just like them. The Gnostics didn't budge and warned loudly, turning all systems upside down and deconstructing reality itself. They didn't wonder how evil came into the world, but how good came into the world. That's what we need to wonder as ignorance soaks society and everything becomes a doublespeak orgy and coincidence theory. This is the desert of the real, after all. And I like how in Animistic, Gordon mentions briefly that Gnosticism could have only originated in the desert. Gnosticism is a desert song. Makes sense, for the desert is the domain of Seth and Sekhmet, the primordial, feral templates for the Gnostic Jesus and Sophia. The desert reveals how dangerous and extreme the universe really is. The desert sky never lies, always exposing the wrath of solar lords during the day and the liquid beauty of star maps at night. The desert is full of mirages that lead to doom but hidden divine sparks of water under those sands of time. In the desert, you can't remember your name because there ain't no one for to give you no pain. The mystery of life isn't a problem to solve, but a reality to experience. A process that cannot be understood by stopping it. We must move with the flow of the process. We must join it. Paul went to Arabia right after the Logos woke him up. And ancient Alexandria was surrounded by a desert brimming with jinns. The Barbellolites and Simonians spoke to for revelation. Society is a desert full of howling, windy ignorance. The dunes are ruled by Ozymandiasis, who cannot understand they oversee a shifting temporal empire of eroding dirt. Gnosticism is a desert song, and the Yazidi, Mandeans, and Sufis still exemplify this. We are indeed in the desert of the real. I hope you understand this, and we continue to mine for the healing waters of Sophia's tears. Led us to our interview with John E. Graham. Every few months, Jesus appears to the unsuspecting in a piece of toast. Or does he? Human beings are pattern-seeking animals. For thousands of years, our survival depended on being able to spot patterns in nature, to find predators hiding in the wild. And so now, centuries later, we are still looking, still searching every cloud for faces, as if our lives depend on it. So strong is our belief that a pattern must exist, that the human mind will reject the pieces that don't fit. So where the pessimist sees danger hiding behind every back, the optimist 
sees friendship. Which is why, when we encounter coincidence, we often see conspiracy. This is the Aeon Bide interview. And with us, we have the pleasure of being joined by John E. Graham to discuss his book, The Bavarian Illuminati, The Rise and Fall of the World's Most Secret Society. John, thank you very much for coming on the show. And how are you? I'm good. Uh, thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. Pleasure is all ours. And with us, too, we've got the Moondog Vance. Vance, how are you doing? Oh, I'm very excited. I'm really waiting to be illuminated about the Illuminati. So hopefully it's not a pyramid scheme this time. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. <eye> on it. <laughs> this is as, uh, as true and as dry as you can get and as beyond any sort of misinformation. This is a good book. And I thought it had a lot of fascinating content and it was the eye-opening, not the third eye of uh, Horace <laughs> or whatever, but just uh, intellectually eye-opening. So, John, how did you come to, uh, well, to translate this book and put it together? Well, it was uh, actually on behalf of a friend of mine who had other plans for it that never uh, came to fruition 15 years ago. So I had spent some time trying to track down the estate holders because uh, even finding out any information about Rene Le Forestier, the author, uh, is difficult. He's left no no digital footprint. Uh, basically, I just know his who he is through the uh, authority of his work. This book is one of several. He specialized in writing about secret societies, occult societies, and all his books show the same kind of deep dig into the records and a illuminating description of their beliefs and premises. Plus he has, he's very gifted with being able to uh, give quick psychological portraits of the people involved uh, in this book. Particularly you see that the psychology of the individual played a, what I think was a key role in the rise and fall of the Illuminati. And so I was, I was asked to do this as a favor, uh, those plans didn't come forward. And then uh, the book has since then gone into the public domain. So I proposed it to uh, the publishing house I work for and they agreed to go ahead with it. So I worked on it uh, a lot more and uh, got it basically ready for, for uh, prime time. Yeah, great to hear. And yeah, looking at the book, it's a huge book. It's uh, very meaty. And you get some great, uh, you might say, uh, support from a really good group of individuals like uh, Mitch Horowitz, Stephen Flowers, Jason Liu, Tobias Churton, Carl Abrahamson, all past guests of this show. So, But if oh, these guys support this book, you know it's the real dope, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I was actually really flattered when I saw them all uh, volunteering these endorsements. So, oh. You know, um, I actually, Mitch was doing a uh, uh, 
some sort of uh, online class on the occult. And he asked if he could get a PDF of it before it was published. So I did that. And then he got back and said he wanted to endorse it. So, of course. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, we just interviewed uh, Mitch about a month ago on his uh, documentary on the Cablion. Oh, right. I'm, say- I'm saying it wrong. <laughs> the Hermetic Text. <laughs> right, right. So it was always a lot of fun. And we talked a lot about the other things like the ba- rock band Kiss and all the stuff that Mitch likes to talk about while he's dealing with esoteric history and all that. So awesome. And um, for the audience, who is Rene Le Forestier? Well, he was a French author who lived from 1868 or yeah, 1868 to 1951. And I have been really unsuccessful in learning much about him. But he wrote not only this book, which uh, was one of his first, and it is still probably one of the most authoritative books on the order of the Illuminati from its founding to its fall and then all the uh, events surrounding its rebirth as one of the uh, favorite conspiracy theories of all time. He uh, wrote about uh, things like uh, other uh, esoteric Freemason groups. He wrote about Martinism, uh, the elect Cohen, which was like one of the early uh, expressions of Martinism, which was a more esoteric Christianity influenced uh, occult society and that was his specialty was to just look at the take these groups out of that have been instrumental in in the esoteric history of Europe at least for the last 300 years 400 years and give a really extensive description of them and the people that were in them as well as the context in which they were working I mean this book the second part of this book is devoted solely to all the other uh, esoteric societies and Freemason groups with, that were working at the same time that the Illuminati formed and their dealings with each other. So it gives you a really good sense of just what the what the uh, spirit of the time was. And to me, I was really surprised to learn just how uh, much occult activity was going on during this period of the mid to late 18th century. Uh, everybody knows about the occult revival in Paris, you know, with the Lefis Levy and people like uh, uh, Papus, the Guasha. But I had not been fully aware of just how extensive it was in the 1700s. But, you know, with the founding of Freemasonry, that was accompanied by a lot of other groups and their activity in Germany was uh, a fundamental part in how the Illuminati developed. And uh, they actually were trying to uh, say, insinuate themselves into some of these groups so as to take their membership for their own. Yeah, Forestier does an incredible job. Yeah, like you said, he he gives you the zeitgeist of the time. He's so thorough with the Illuminati, their structure, uh, the the political culture. Like you said, he tries to get into Weishaupt's head. Uh, it's just uh, he breaks down the structure of the secret society and other secret societies. So it is all there. 
And uh, well, like I started before, let's talk about Johnny Graham. Is this uh, tell maybe the audience a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in these uh, esoteric topics? Well, I've been interested in, uh, I think, like most people growing up in the 60s and 70s, I uh, grew up uh, interested in occult ideas, but I didn't take a serious interest. Uh, I was actually redirected into it uh, while I was uh, working as, you know, not working so much as, as uh, pursuing surrealist activities and uh, reading a lot of the older surrealist texts, especially by Andre Breton, you see a lot of occult influences. You know, and he talks about uh, uh, Pasquale de Martinez, the uh, founder of the Martinez. He talks about uh, uh, you know, Heraclitus and Agrippa, all these various people that are uh, very familiar to uh, followers and people with an interest in the occult today at a time when there was not such uh, deep interest in it. And the Surrealist group as a whole uh, started uh, revealing more occult tendencies, uh, definitely with the Second Manifesto, where he cites uh, alchemical treatises throughout, but in 1947 with the large uh, World International Exhibition that was based on uh, 12 altars representing surrealist occult themes, uh, then intrusion in the occult, in the enchanter's domain in like 60 in New York at Darcy Galleries was another one in which they uh, displayed a lot of their occult interests. And from that cauldron, so we say, I started pursuing uh, their interest in other things, going back to the source, as it were, to uh, their interest in indigenous cultures, uh, ceremonial cultures that still had strong ceremonial practices, uh, occult cultures. And uh, I started translating. I actually was translating French texts of surrealism for my friends who didn't speak French. And it just took off from there. And I started translating uh, more books and more and more different books. And eventually this, this, uh, this term came my way. Very cool. And um, why, I guess the $64,000 question in sort of a high level is, John, why do you think that the Illuminati has captured the imagination of people for so long? I mean, like you said, um, there were other secret societies, the Martinists and other. I was initiated as a Martinist many years ago. Uh, there was a lot going on, but the Illuminati really has uh, captured, uh, especially in modern times, the attention of so many individuals. For example, just yesterday, I sort of typed in historical Illuminati on YouTube, and it was pages of pages of conspiracy theory from rap music to politicians. I had to go deep just to find a video that was similar to your book, something that was just, uh, this is their history and so forth. I mean, is it as simple as uh, Shia and Wilson and the Illuminatus, Illuminatus theory that sparked this? Or what do you think? Well, I, I've been describing it as like an egregore, which is you know a, a thought form that takes on a life of its own. 
you know, that it's uh, it's created by a group that uh, usually a spiritual group, a religious group that believes in something so intently that their mental activity creates a kind of uh, thought form. I think Egregore comes from the Greek for watcher, as in the watchers of Enoch, but it also involves this like this uh-huh. this spiritual entity, this uh, independent entity that's uh, larger than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And you can see that with other beliefs throughout history, where the beliefs survived the original believers. And I think there's part of that. It's also when you're reading the book about the decline of the order, uh, it was suppressed by the Bavarian government as a threat to public safety and a menace to church and state. And the attacks on the Illuminati, which came from all sides at that point, because members of other or the leaders of other secret societies did not look kindly on them for trying to poach their members because they were their approach was to say we have really secret truths and what they're trying to tell you is just uh fraudulent things just to get your money so the rosicrucians in particular were especially antagonists toward the Illuminati and had been sending out broadsides warning their uh, fellow occultists of all stripes about this order, trying to insinuate itself in their in their midst. But at the same time, they did succeed in finding positions throughout the administration and courts and educational institutions of Bavaria. And at the time, the order was amassed. Uh, it was, you know, hundreds of them were dismissed. And this, I think, left a really strong impression on the people of the German-speaking region at that time. But after they started writing books about it uh, in 1790s, the Munich Center approved books using the uh, documents that had been seized uh, during the searches of Illuminati properties. And I think the, the story of the Illuminati really impressed itself on people so that when the French Revolution happened a few years later, they instantly stood out as the likely uh, cause for that. Yeah, that is true. Uh, it caught the imagination, but Correct me if I'm wrong. Weren't all secret societies banned in Bavaria? You think the book talks about Charles Theodore's government. Shut, mm-hmm. Didn't he shut all of them down? And just the yeah, Illuminati he shut them was, the one, was the most disliked of all of them? Is that it? <laughs> yeah, I think his, his reasoning was he didn't want to just cite one. And he also wasn't too clued up on what they were. So he decided a blanket ban on all secret societies was probably the safest course. He was also encouraged by his uh, confessor, who was a Jesuit. Technically speaking, he was an ex-Jesuit because the church had ordered the Jesuits to disband because he feared that they were a secret society uh, pursuing a path inimical to his own desires for the church. Uh, They were reconstituted later in the 19th century, but the Jesuits, even though disbanded, were still uh, 
the religious power of Bavaria, and that was one of the main uh, uh, that was one of the main motivations for Weishaupt's creation of the Illuminati order in the beginning. And they were also probably the most uh, fervent in their desire to destroy the society once its existence was revealed. Mm -hmm. And the Jesuits wanted to destroy? Oh, yeah. But, you know, the things are so confused is that some people thought the Illuminati were actually a Jesuit uh, front, a false flag operation. Yeah, that's what I've heard, too, because, yeah, they were disbanded right before the Illuminati appeared, and then they came back again not too soon right. after. So people said, hmm, was this like a false flag by the Jesuits or something like that? No, that, and that's, you know, that was a, a theory that many people thought credible at that time. And, you know, the Jesuits were like the Illuminati. Uh, Weishaupt adopted a lot of the uh, signature uh, traits of the alum of the Jesuits was uh, you know intellectually astute but morally on um, say somewhat ambiguous duplicitous mm -hmm. the ends justify the means that kind of thing and but at the same time his own youth and in Jesuit institutions and then as a professor at a college that was no longer under complete control by the Jesuits, but who formed a solid block to his desire to bring books into the curriculum that were still considered uh, censorable by the Bavarian authorities. And he believed that the Jesuits of the college were constantly scheming to get him out of ousted and he'd lose his position and his, uh, his pay. And the Illuminati order was, in a sense, brought together because he felt the only way he could attack them, not just a, you know, for his personal goals at the university, but in the broader context of Bavaria, was to create a clandestine society that could move unnoticed. Otherwise, the Jesuits' greater control of the reins of power would quickly subdue them. So there was always a kind of uh, Jesuit motive, his hatred of the Jesuits that was propelling his his decisions and how he ran the organization, how he ran the order, how he shaped the development of the order. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Very, very interesting. And as uh, the book also says, uh, after the dissolution of the Illuminati, it was the Rosicrucians who, who kept saying, oh, they haven't gone away or they've come back. I mean, they, they didn't help the, the myth and the legend, did they? 
Uh, no, not at all. I mean, they, they're philosophically, they were fairly far apart. I mean, uh, I don't have any of their uh, take to him, but it's, 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 it's kind of a split that you find in the cult uh, tradition, at least through the last uh, three or 400 years, where there's a kind of liberal branch and a conservative branch. And the conservatives of this time believed that uh, the divine right of kings was part of cosmic order, that uh, the problems of the world were based on the fact that people were straying away from this divine hierarchy that mirrored the same hierarchy of the cosmos. You know, if you look at uh, Cathar doctrine or Gnostic doctrine, there's a kind of hierarchy between flesh being at the bottom and pure light being at the top with various stages in between. And the sovereign, the, hier the hierarchical nature of their spiritual beliefs, where they believed had to be mirrored in the social order in order for uh, human existence to, to thrive. Whereas the Illuminati were more on the uh, deist and uh, human liberation side. They believed that, I mean, they, the Illuminati's first name was a perfectibilist, which was expressive of their belief that individuals freed of the oppression of superstition and clerical interference and uh, corrupt monarchies and the censorship of anything that opposed the established order would be able to mature that they were in effect kept as a kind of in a kind of uh, childish state by these uh, overbearing autocratic institutions and if they were given the freedom to evolve they would create on their own a society where there was no war where people could would exist with each other in harmony and respect and you've always had this division between i'd say you know there's the evola and julius evola is obviously looking at the past as providing the model and then you have the more progressive occultists that are seeing that the future is a place where things will get freer yeah, I think as you, as the book says, the Illuminati were against uh, superstition, uh, religious control, and state corruption. So uh, they were really, I mean, you could say exemplified what the Enlightenment was, uh, reason, science, uh, getting away from these old traditions, uh, and metaphysics. Oh, yeah. No, that that's, uh, you know, that's a very accurate observation. Is that they were really uh, a branch of the Enlightenment, and you know, when Thomas Jefferson heard of them in the early 1800s, he wrote of them approvingly, and he described Abbe Baruel, who was one of the chief detractors and one of the biggest supporters of the Illuminati myth, because he wrote these three volumes attacking them as the instigators of the revolution in France and responsible mm -hmm. for everything else that had gone wrong in Europe, and. Jefferson described Baruel as a lunatic, a bedlamite to be <laughs> more exact, but, you know, and he said uh, he thought 
Weishaupt's ideas were were uh, salutary and and healthy, and and he saw nothing wrong whatsoever in what he was preaching. Yeah, indeed, and it's so. Yeah, going back, I love your idea of an egregore. Once this genie is out of the bottle, and it can be so many things, and we give it the psychic attention, it takes a life of its own. These sort of viruses, a collective viruses thought viruses but again it seems that it, the illuminati really captured the attention of uh of western society in the 70s but before that i mean yeah french revolution 19th century 20th century even with the the 19th century later cult revival in england and blavatsky and all that 20th century does the illuminati really appear on the radar of any sensationalist ideas or or is it, again, is this more of a modern thing where they suddenly catch the attention of everybody, including Dan Brown in his book, uh, Angels and Demons? Oh, yeah, that's right. And, I, and uh, someone I talked to recently was telling me that the Illuminati are featured in the next uh, Doctor Strange movie, which. Really? Oh, wow. yeah. So I'm <laughs> thrilled to see what what form <laughs> they'll take in that. But uh, I think it's more of a modern manifestation and that robert anton wilson may have had something to do with that mm -hmm. but you will find that the uh they never really went away during the entire time of the uh when napoleon had conquered germany and the there was some resistance to that the french intelligence services believed that the illuminati were uh, probably responsible for the people that were protesting the the rules imposed by the French. And I think in 1848, which was a time of revolutionary upheaval all over Europe, there were those who again said, this is the work of the Illuminati. Mm. Yeah, I'd have to look more because this is things I remember from reading other, other uh, histories but uh i don't know if uh if marx and lenin got all the credit or if somebody still thought the illuminati were involved with uh, <laughs> yeah. what happened in 1917 but, yeah it's uh maybe it's mass media i mean i know for example you can watch your typical horror movie or an occult movie and they're either going to blame some sort of lovecraft uh theme they're going to blame the Gnostics, uh, probably, obviously, people blame the Jews and their black magic. They're going to blame some sort of Thelema uh, based kind of religion. You know, you've got all these boogeymen that uh, popular culture likes to tap into uh, right. as their villain du jour in these movies and TV shows and novels and all that. But the Illuminati is a huge one, too. Again, People aren't, yeah, yeah, Freemasons get blamed, but you don't see, again, Martinus and Rosicrucians as the big bad villain. And Vance, what do you think of this? Well, um, I've, I've uh, years ago, I read the Illuminatus trilogy. I don't remember much about it, but uh, it seems to me that, you know, almost like whoever whoever comes out as the Illuminati really isn't the Illuminati. <laughs> the Illuminati, the real Illuminati are the ones that are secret, you know, the, the ones that didn't get caught. 
we got a lot of people these days that are qualified for it, though, like the that guy Klaus. Uh, what's his name? Klaus, uh, Klaus the, Schwab. Oh, yeah. 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 Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You, will, you won't own anything and you'll be happy. You know, that that's the kind of thing you think the Illuminati would say. Although it sounds like to me, uh, John, that uh, from what you're saying, there, at least the original, you know, Adam Weishaupt Illuminati, they sound more like the founding fathers of the United States, where they were for freedom and freedom of assembly, and they were against, you know, corruption and all that stuff. Of course, every group says that they're against the bad stuff, and they're the good guys, right? Cloud yeah. Rob thinks he's doing good for the world. <laughs> yeah, and then there's a whole. Uh, the originally uh, their their symbol was the owl of Minerva, right? right. And and yeah. and, uh, and the Bohemian Grove guys have that death of care ritual mm-hmm. um, with, with the giant owl. Uh, be quiet, Birdie. I'm talking about owls. <laughs> That's my bird over there. He, he's part of the show now. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I really got to wonder, a lot of these things are tied up together, you know? That, that's that's what I'm... Well, I'm yeah, the symbols, you know, the occult symbols are like, uh, it, it's like cultural DNA. Mm-hmm. They just keep resurfacing. And, you know, they give power to whoever knows how to use them or mm-hmm. abuse them. But, uh, you know, the, I think the more they are used, the more power they get. Mm-hmm. They sort of accrete a kind of sensibility. And they, you know, they, they, I mean, the way they're interpreted might be totally wrong, but this, uh, the symbol of the Alice uh, with the Illuminati mm-hmm. still has uh, power. I mean, I wouldn't surprise me if somebody in the Bohemian Grove that was responsible for that was aware of its pedigree. Sure. Not not only that, in Twin Peaks, the owls aren't what they seem, right? Exactly. <laughs> They're always watching. The owls are watching from the Black Lodge. So True. Yeah, yeah I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> I mean, there's endless rabbit holes you can go down when you start oh, yeah. looking at the other side. I mean, this book is a very sober stick to the facts, Joe Friday type of approach. <laughs> but, you know, when you get to the, you know, that's what's so great about this book is that it's a six parts and the six part is just devoted to the formation of the legend. It's fascinating. I mean, you get the, I guess he was a, a Scottish uh, Freemason who believed that all Freemasons, not English, were uh, corrupting the order. And he wrote some huge tome that also had played a role in uh, convincing people that the Illuminati were this uh, giant secret organization that had its people everywhere and that nobody could do anything that they did, that they didn't approve of without suffering serious consequences. And I just I, have, I wrote the title down of his book. Uh, it's good to hear that Weisup was very good at his own marketing. <laughs> Yeah. John Robeson was the author of Proofs of a Conspiracy Against All the Religions and Governments on Europe, mm. carried on in the secret meetings of Freemasons, Illuminati, and reading societies. I mean, that pretty much covers it all. Yeah. And it was a huge hit. I mean, he published it in England. It was published several years later in Philadelphia and New York. And I think some of Jefferson's detractors were uh, used it to accuse him of being a, an Illuminati. Oh, really? 
Hmm. Interesting. Well, Jefferson was in secret societies. I mean, I believe yeah. he was a Freemason. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, you know, the, the Freemasons were, you know, obviously heavily involved in the American Revolution. Oh, yeah. And then in the 1830s, I believe there was a anti-Mason society that was a, became a political party that believed that Masons were secretly trying to destroy the republic that their uh, forefathers had created. But they didn't last long there. They had a uh, candidate in the 1832 presidential elections who won one state, which happened to be my home state of Vermont. <laughs> that's probably the only reason I remember him. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating. And yeah, you, we just talked about the atmosphere in Europe. But like you said, there was a robust uh, occult secret society movement in Europe. There was uh, enlightenment was going strong. The old religions like the Roman Catholic Church were still uh, holding on. So again, it was just uh, a Game of Thrones, as it always is in the, in Europe mm -hmm. and still is today. Um, oh, yeah. What would you say? Could you tell us a little bit about Weishaupt and how he became who he is? I mean, I oh, like sure. in one place, um, Forestier calls him a... Uh, a martyr for free thought. That's what uh, Weishaupt saw himself. <laughs> no, he did. And, you know, that's the tragedy of Weishaupt is that he espoused these ideas and he believed in them sincerely, but he also was kind of a petty dictator. He was uh, very much an autocrat. And uh, his tenure at Ingolstadt University sort of provides a in miniature uh, a picture of how he operates operated throughout the existence of the order he was he got his position there through the uh, through uh, Baron Einstein who was fairly liberal and had been given uh, custody of this university which was a Jesuit institution mm. to liberalize it to a certain extent and make it more uh, conversant with with uh, European values. I mean, uh, Bavaria at this time was still one of the more backwards parts of Europe, especially Germany, where the Protestant Enlightenment had shaped culture and uh, social order throughout all the, the other uh, electorates and principalities. But Bavaria, which had shielded its borders during the Reformation. In fact, it was the site of the Counter-Reformation and was almost like a kind of medieval North Korea. There was no Protestants allowed in of any kind. And centuries later, it was still uh, laboring under a church domination that had ceased to be a problem in the rest of what became Germany. And this made it so that Weishaupt felt that the only way he could converse with ideas that were freely expressed elsewhere in Germany would be to create a secret society. And while it was based on ideas of freedom, free expression, 
he himself was very autocratic and he wanted to micromanage everything. So every time there were people there in the order whose efforts to expand it and to build on it went too far, he would break with them and they would lead the order. And where this is really, the tragedy is that uh, at one point, uh, a man named Baron Adolf Knigge became involved with the Illuminati. And it was his efforts that allowed the Illuminati order to extend itself, not you know well beyond Bavaria, into uh, the Weimar, Frankfurt area, to Aiken up in the north, all throughout into Prussia, but also Vienna, Prague, Budapest. And he was a much more worldly and I always say more approachable person than Weishaupt. And Weishaupt gave him total leeway at first, and then his natural desire to be the one in command took over and he ousted Kanigi, which then gave, you know, Kanigi's up. You know, was upset with this, and his stories added fuel to the uh, suspicions that were already being felt by the other secret societies who knew that the Illuminati were seeking to uh, co-opt them. So, you know, Weishaupt's personality, his his arrogance, in a way, was the Achilles' heel of the order he created. He was because his it own did. worst enemy, huh? Yeah, basically. Which, you know, Forestier does this, uh, provides these very interesting psychological portraits of like the key players here, you know, and including the elector, their, their timidity in certain ways. I mean, Charles Theodore didn't make a move on the Illuminati for some time after his uh, cousin, the Duchess, or a queen, uh, Princess Clementina, who had been told in uh, garish detail about all the crimes the Illuminati were planning to commit, it took him months to actually act on her advice to suppress the order at once. It required you know, a lot of uh, work by his Jesuit confessor to convince him that they really did pose a danger to him because at first he just was, doesn't seem to be a problem. Very interesting. Yeah. Like you, like, well, like his historical fact founded on May 1st, 1776, uh, didn't last what 13 years till 1789. And, uh, what would you say at their height? How many members do you think they had? I think, uh, people are generally, several thousand, maybe 3,000. Mm. I mean, there was a point where they had uh, uh, branches on all cities throughout uh, Germany and even large towns. And they had uh, outposts in Austria, uh, what's now the Czech Republic, and Hungary. And uh, how did one join the Illuminati? Was this by invitation, or how did the, the leadership work this out? 
Yeah, that was it was by invitation, and that was one of the uh, key activities of the people that were already members of the order. They were actively encouraged to not only be seeking new members, but to be seeking members that could aid the order in some way, uh, either financially or providing access to people of power, or even uh, they, it, he really created a kind of network where if a member heard there was a really uh, cushy job coming open and he had some influence with uh, people looking to hire someone, then he was supposed to exercise that influence to get one of his brethren into the job. Uh, people in jobs, I mean, a lot of uh, Illuminati were able to secure jobs as uh, personal counselors to various aristocrats, members of the nobility. Uh, and they were encouraged to uh, seek and deal incriminating documents so that the order could have a hold over people that might at some point be a threat. And the order did, in fact, get its members placed in quite a few places, in quite a few uh, positions of, of authority, which I think is what probably finally convinced the elector that he had to clamp down on secret societies when the full extent of the Illuminati infiltration of the educational and court systems of Bavaria was revealed. Mm, very interesting. And uh, how was they, how were they structured? I know uh, in the book, Weishaupt called himself Spartacus. And then the other leaders had, of course, very classical names like Ajax, Agathon, Tiberius, Erasmus, Retiroamus. And uh, like you said, John, they, they didn't call themselves the Illuminati. They were the Perfectibilis. Mm-hmm. So this, this is how it was, just regional leaders with these cool names? Or how was, it, how was right. the organization structured? No, they even changed the names of the cities their lodges were in. Munich was called Athens, for example. And so there was this whole, and the Aeropagus, which is the ruling council of the Illuminati, is based on uh, the Aeropagus, which was a uh, ruling body in ancient Greece. Everything was, you know, it was like an attempt, like much of the Enlightenment was an attempt to restore the values of uh, Greece at its democratic zenith mm. within, you know, the heart of of uh, Europe, which in Bavaria's case was still very medieval to a certain, in certain, in certain areas. It was, you know, the last place on the European continent where a witch was burned. Oh, really? So it had its, you know, and it, it had its detractors among the rest of Germans who looked down on it, even if it's just on the levels that they don't speak German properly. Yeah, and as we discussed, they chose uh, the owl for the goddess Minerva or mm-hmm. uh, Athena. Uh, that was that became their symbol. And why don't we talk a little bit about some of their levels, which is, of course, very interesting. I know for the audience, there's no uh, drinking blood or world domination or anything like that, right? You started no. as a novitiate, and uh, Forestier talks about it. there's a lot of desk work and reading and uh, boring work, isn't it? <laughs> well, it's actually humanly impossible, and I read for a living, so I can tell you that the reading list, coupled with the fact that you had to write uh, 
you know, in-depth personal self-analysis, listing all your critical flaws and defects so oh. that the order could have a clear sense of who they were dealing with. You were expected to spy on your fellow members and write equally uh, detailed accounts of them and to turn those into your superior. So that was, in effect, it was like, on the one hand, there's the uh, self transformation aspect on the other hand there's the uh super surveillance aspect the amount of reading that they were expected to do and to write all of these things would take all of their time and of course weishaupt was always disappointed with his members that would enjoy going out and flirting with women or <laughs> having a beer instead of staying home and working on the order's business but he had to work with what he had uh the the novitiate who reached a certain point would then be invited to become a mineral and they have uh the the book includes the the initiation ceremonies of several between several levels and these were things that Kanigi had redrafted on uh, Weishaupt's rough notes because Kanigi not only was uh, more successful at recruiting a wider variety of people than Weishaupt and the people he'd recruited, but he was also more energetic and he completely uh, recast the order's philosophies and it's but especially its levels, its grades, and he rewrote the entire grade system based on his own involvement with Masonic systems. There's a lot of similarities between uh, Masonry and the Illuminati grade system. In fact, I think the second level is basically uh, a, a summary of the standard uh, Masonic apprentice, journeyman, master steps. And then after that, you go into more elaborate grades such as you find in the scottish rite masonry and uh, after the minerva level i think there's wasn't there another in the illuminated level or what was yeah. some of the other yeah levels? the minerva the illuminated minerva on oh. uh, each level gave you more uh access to uh the order's secrets but only so many and also more authority over the people that were of lower levels. It also gave you more discretion in uh, bringing people into the order. We are at the end. This has been a really good discussion. I think the audience, uh, like I said, you'll benefit a lot from this book and it's thorough. Mitch Horowitz is using it. So, you know, it's good because he's always at the forefront uh, not just cutting edge, but making sure history is settled and sober. And uh, first of all, Vance, thanks for uh, keeping us company. Okay, uh, me and my owl over here uh, had a good time hearing about the uh, the uh, the Illuminati. So I'll have to get back to my pyramid over here. I got to polish uh, it up, get the yeah, eye. I have to put my blindfold on. <laughs> Don't walk hey. down the stairs. <laughs> hey, you know they were once accused of Socinianism, uh, which was like a non-Trinitarian. Oh, um, right. 
Yeah, and I, yeah, and so Sionism, I, it's kind of hard to pronounce, but uh, yeah, my ancestor, my ancestors were responsible for starting it, the Faustus of Sinus. Hmm. So, so who oh, knows? That's cool. Yeah. So, hmm. so good luck, John, with the book. Yeah, okay. John, we really appreciate you coming on AM Byte and good luck with everything you do and all your future projects. And we appreciate your time. Oh, thank you. I uh, appreciate being invited. It was great to speak with both of you and uh, hope to hope to do this again sometime if I come up with another book. Yeah, we'll be looking for you. Yes, maybe you can do the, maybe it'll be the autobiography of George Soros or something like that. <laughs> Just joking. I thought the same thing. <laughs> the real autobiography. Well, John, yeah, we definitely look forward to having you on next and thanks for everything. Thank you. All right. Good night. Good night. And there you have it, oh you shining crazy diamonds. First part of John illuminating us on the Illuminati. In our second part, John will share some of the ritual ceremonies and secret signs of the Illuminati. He'll explain what the core beliefs of Adam Weishaupt were. What happened to Weishaupt after the Illuminati was disbanded? Where did he go and what did he do? We'll also get into other Freemason groups and secret societies in Bavaria and the nearby region. What is strict observance Freemasonry? And how did Count Cagliostro benefit from the legend of the Illuminati? And much more. As mentioned in the intro and as a bonus for all subscribers, I'll include an excerpt from an interview with Gnostic academic Matthew Dillon, where he discusses the psycho-spirituality of conspiracy theories. It's a proper balance to this episode, with some cool Jungian and Gnostic bells and whistles. So please become a member for the full conspiracy. It's only $6.99 for AB Prime or $4.99 a month on Red Circle or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. For AB Prime members and higher level Patreons, you'll get access to my private Facebook group and Discord. If you find value in this content, please support. Your support can be in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the US Mail. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe now. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Get your popular Not Today Archons t-shirts today. Don't forget my voiceover availability. I'll bring you stellar voiceover with down-to-earth professionalism, no matter what project or scope you need. Keep in mind I'm also on Rockfin or Odyssey if crypto is your bag. If you need help with all these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 
91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.